Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of P.E. Wynn. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Wynn. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Wynn provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Wynn, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, Kelly Williams, and also the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation. And I'm very excited today to have my friend, Melissa Ma, as my guest. Um, Many of you know her as a founder of uh, the legendary firm of Asia Alternatives, and I'm really excited about our conversation today. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you, Kelly. I am so thrilled to be here as well, especially with you. Well. I promise I'll take good care of you. And um, I always do. (laughs) And I want to start where I always start, which is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how and where you grew up? Sure. Um, So most people actually find it pretty surprising, Kelly. I am from the very deep south. I was actually born in um, Oxford, Mississippi. Um, So for you English lit majors, that's known as Faulkner country, (laughs) uh, William Faulkner country. Um, Both of my parents are immigrants uh, from Taiwan. And we can come back to kind of that later. And they met at graduate school and they were both uh, working at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. Right. So I was born in Ole Miss. And, it, you know, even from that very early age of growing up in Mississippi, you know, it was a very formative, you know, like you can't remember a lot, but there are moments that you can remember that affect a lot of, you don't realize that till decades later, at least in my case. And so, you know, being, um, you know, this was in the 19, this was in the 19, early 1970s, right? And there just weren't, I mean, there weren't a lot of Asians, right, in the Deep South. And I specifically remember my mother, my mother worked, which was also pretty unusual. And I found she's a chemist. And my mother was the only senior chemistry researcher at the university. Uh, and she had to walk uh, across the campus to the nurse's campus, to the nurse's building to use the bathroom. There wasn't even a women's bathroom at that time, right? My mother's a PhD. And so that obviously, you know, just remembering as a child being dragged to work with her and then we had to walk across the campus and go to the bathroom, right? I can remember that. And then the other indelible memory was that, um, you know, this is the 1970s, okay? We are far past the civil rights era. But, uh, you know, it's still a pretty conservative town. And so we lived in a very small community of professors. And my best friend and my mother's best friend and my best friend was Indian. And we were in the town square and we were going into, we were turning, uh, you know, we were turning kind of a, uh, you know, a a decent age where our moms were like, okay, you can have a fancy dress. So the four of us walk in, me, my mom and my friend and her mom, who are Indian, walk in. And we walk into what's, you know, kind of considered the fanciest kids dress store, right? And I distinctly remember that my friend and her mother were asked to leave the store. Oh my gosh. Yes. So none of us are white, but somewhere but my but somewhere in that spectrum, right? I was I was white enough, but they were not, 
right? And from then on, so when, you know, so, so much of the founding work that you've done and so many other trailblazers that we've had that we talk about, right, in our industries as women, as minorities, it just, you know, it, it didn't, I didn't really realize how much that hit home to me when, until I really even think about kind of those early experiences that I had, I'm kind of feeling like I was, a, you know, as an outsider, in some cases excluded. Wow. Um, we then moved to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was a little bit bigger, but it's still a pretty small town in Tennessee. And that's really where I grew up until I went to college. So my first question for you is, how did you lose your accent? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I am going to sound so you know, so, you know, this is going to be so not politically correct. So those of you who live in the South, please forgive me because I love living in the South. I have a lot of friends that live in the South. But um, again, you know, because we obviously were subject of a lot of different, you know, stereotypes and racisms. You know, the last thing my mother said that I could do is to, because I, I was going to go to school in the Northeast, right? And the last thing she said is I wasn't going to survive if I still had my Southern accent. Uh-huh. Right. And so you so did have a, one at one So time. she beat it out of me. <laughs> She beat it out of me. And again, just the Chinese are incredibly practical. It was literally nothing other than just pragmatism. Yeah. Right? Oh, my word. That's, oh, gosh. Well, so so the question is, when you're back there, do you drop back into it? We really don't go back that much. We don't have much family back there, but I do pick it up. And so even when I'm around friends that have a Southern, have a Southern accent, you will hear a little bit of my twang yeah. coming back. Well, I think, I think regardless of where you're from, everybody starts to say y'all when you're down South. So that's exactly. <laughs> that, well, that is so amazing. Exactly. You know, as you're talking yeah. about the story of your mom, it reminds me of that, um, the scene from Hidden Figures you know, about the women oh, scientists, yes, yes. right? And they had she's to walk, rushing to the she's bathroom. rushing to get to the bathroom. Yeah. That, that's, yes. oh my gosh, that's, that's incredible. But that, you know, I, yeah. That's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah. It was a little bit like that. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so given that you grew up in the South and kind of, mm -hmm. um, spent your formative years there, what was your first job? Mm -hmm. So my godmother, she ran the only Chinese restaurant in our town in Tennessee, by the way. <laughs> and it was a, it was basically a converted like trailer. It wasn't, it was, a, it was a restaurant, but it was kind of like a, a converted, uh, you know, um, outpost. And it was, um, and it was mostly a takeout business. Okay. So my job was I worked the cash, I worked the cash register, but it's a really small place, right? It's not a big place. So if you work the cash register, you are also, that's, you also responsible for the takeout window and you're also responsible for frying the egg rolls and the wontons. Okay. So that was basically, I had like three jobs. That was basically my first job. And to this day, right, you know, there, you know, I can, I can still uh, fry wontons and uh, egg rolls and take orders like the best of them. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, that not just, I mean, similar in some ways, I, I people have heard yeah. me talk about my first job before yeah. on this show of Dairy Queen where had to take the orders, ran the register. Yes. And I can still do the Dairy Queen curl on the ice cream cone. I can you? Good to for this you. day. I still That's can do good it. Good for you. I still can. Good for you. So what what is is there anything from that experience that you take yes. with you today? Yes. So first and foremost, I think anybody that works in food service, and so even though, you know, so my son just did his first summer job and he worked in food service as well, right? You did it. And I wonder if you had the same experience. It literally teaches you how important it is to get a college education. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh -huh. because you work so hard and you get minimum wage, and by the time you get your paycheck and you learn the concept of FICA and Social Security and everything <laughs> else, right? That's one thing, right? You just learn they learn the concept of net. I didn't call it net, but I knew that I was taking home very little, right? So that's one. The second is um, you also learn the value of customer service because you make your money on tips. Right. Mm -hmm. You make your money on tips. And I just think that especially in this day and age, and I say this, you know, I'm not trying to judge all kids. I'll just judge maybe the kids around me. Right. Um, you know, the learning the importance of humility and service and, you know, um, and today, you know, you know, client service. I mean, a lot of what we do. Right. You know, I know, Kelly, you're in summer, but you're in summer business client service. Right. You know, and having that ability to relate to people, even if you don't have that much in common on the on the surface. Right. Is so important. So, um, um, you know, that, uh, that, and then the last is, and I was going to say the same thing for you. I also think that also teach you multitasking, right? To this day, my team members are like, oh my gosh, we can't keep up with you. And that's because you know, I can multitask like mm -hmm. the best of them, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I always say that's a particular talent of women. I think it's sort of, you know, oh, innate yes, in us. That. 
but I, I would, agree, I would agree with you. I, I think I learned yeah. a lot of my, um, my client service skills, which as you say, a lot of it is just sort of sublimating your own ego yes. and realizing, yes. you, you know, you've got to, right. you've got to figure out a way to make the other person happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of the kids don't get that experience. I recently had yeah. an experience, um, where someone with almost no experience felt that they, you know, deserved a certain job. And I was like, deserve? I am not. Oh, I'm so, I'm so I'm, with you on that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Or deserved that. a certain raise yeah. or deserved a certain, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. right. Yeah. Um, so We're showing our age, by the way. I know we are. About, We're going to start talking you know about that, right? walking to school and all those things <laughs> soon. Um, so, so how did you make the transition from your godmother's yeah. Chinese restaurant to private yep. equity? Yeah. So for me, it was actually a number of kind of twists and turns. Unlike many people that I interview today for jobs at Asia Alt, I did not grow up. I did not grow up. Or I didn't even graduate from college being like, God, I got to be an investment banker. I got to be a consultant. I got to be in private equity, right? These were all completely new things to me. So I actually, um, my path to private equity has been a little bit windy. So I was very, I was very fortunate. I, I, got, I did get to go to Harvard to go to college and all of my summers. And so, you know, you know, one of the people ask you, if you weren't, if you were doing what you were doing today, what would you probably be? And I would say, I probably would be like a public defender or I probably would be like a community, a community, uh, public, um, lawyer, because um, I, that's what I did in the summers. I worked for rural legal services. All I wanted to do was go to law school. But guess what? You know, one of my earliest failures was I bombed the LSATs coming out of school. You're kidding. I bombed the LSATs and was basically told it wasn't going to be good enough to get in any top law school. And I was like, well, that's a waste. So then at the last minute, I was like, well, okay, if you can't go, I got to wait and take the LSATs again. And in the meantime, I got to make money. So I've got to go get a job. So I went to the career services. And back then it was still these resume books, right? You can put your resume in the book and then they go through these resume books. So I said, okay, quickly put together a resume, put my resume books. And, you know, was lucky I got a lot of interviews. I got investment banking interviews. I got consulting interviews. I didn't get a single consulting offer, okay, but I got five investment banking offers. I didn't even know what investment banking was, Kelly. Wow. I, I, I wouldn't have know known it, it either, to be honest. I didn't even know what it was, right? I didn't even know what it was. So I remember on like two days before the deadline was due, I called my friend David Tunnell, who is now a senior partner at Hellman & Freeman and a dear friend, right? David always just had it together, right? He always had it together. And so I called David and I said, okay, David, what do I do, right? So these are my offers and here's what I do. And he was the one that said, oh, you got to go to Goldman Sachs. Like, I didn't even know what Goldman Sachs was. I mean, that's how out of it I was. Like I couldn't even like compare the banks, right? David had told me to go work at Goldman Sachs. And so I worked at Goldman Sachs. I was in the financial services group, and I couldn't believe they put me in financial services because if I barely knew anything about investment banking and Goldman Sachs, how much do you think I knew about financial services, right? It's like, oh, my God. So at the time, I didn't think anything of it. Now I'm like, oh, my gosh, what a disaster it was going to be. Um, but, uh, I ended up hating investment banking. And then again, it was, okay, what's the quickest thing that I can do to get out of investment banking? And I knew that, and then I had tried again. I was like, okay, if I'm going to stay. And then along the way I had gotten rid of my notion that I wanted to be a lawyer. And again, I just feel like I'm trashing all sorts of people, but these are very formative moments for me, right? Cause I was taking the LSAT again. I was going to go to law school and at Goldman Sachs, they work very closely with Sullivan and Cromwell. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, when I looked at how this was all pre-IPO, like remember, you know, I'm old. Okay. So this was not the days of how analysts are today. Okay. There was no protection in terms of hours or what you, what you had or what you could or could not do. Right. And so it, I was exhausted. I thought I was the total bottom of the totem pole. And I said to myself, but the only people that are lower on this deal chain are the associates at Sullivan and Cromwell. You nailed it. <laughs> you nailed the it. the only people who are lower than, that have the worst time that I do. And I was like, I cannot do that. And so there, there by, by all means went away, you know, went away my, uh, any, 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 any desire to apply to law school. So then if you're an investment banker, again, same thing, like back to my career, right? You decide you're not going to go to law school. You haven't taken, you know, you've taken the LSATs. That's all you're prepared for. Well, the next easiest thing to do is to apply to business school, right? Because you know you want to get out of banking, right? <laughs> you want to sleep again. So I applied to business school. 
Uh, I applied to business school, unfortunately. I went to and uh, and got into Harvard. And that was just so pivotal because that's where I met my co-founder. So if we talk about Asia later, many people know that's where I met Lori and I met Rebecca, right? And again, nothing that I ever thought I was going to do, but, you know, ended up being a totally pivotal for me. So um, after bit, so, so then you're like, okay, well, keep going. And by this point, you would have thought that I would have some clue about what I wanted to do. Not really, but I knew I wanted to, I knew I wanted to work in Asia, Okay, I wanted to work in China. I'd been an East Asian Studies major. I am Chinese, American Chinese. I was born here, but I lived my whole life in Mississippi and Tennessee. I knew nothing kind of about my culture, right? And so I said, for the summer, I want somebody to pay for me to live in Asia. That was my goal, okay? And the only summer job where somebody could would pay for you to live and do a summer internship and pay for you to live in Hong Kong was at McKinsey. Mm. So then I went back to consulting because I thought I was no good at it since nobody gave me a job right before. I was like, I can't be good at it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, that's where I want to go. But I said, that's it. I'm only going to do it for one summer. And I'm not going to – I'm not going to do it. But I actually ended up loving it. Mm. I actually ended up loving it. And so – I stayed at McKinsey for a number of years, and I know I'm twisting and turning, but this actually gets to where I am in private equity. So here I am. I've stayed at McKinsey long past most of my peers. That's also where uh, Rebecca, my co-founder, went. So it was also, you know, also allowed us to, to we have a similar background in that regard. So I'm trudging along here, right? And I'm, I'm sure you and many other women who've worked in banks or consulting services, you get to a certain senior level, right? And there is just a, there's a partnership review process, right? And I'm kind of hitting a ceiling, right? I'm hitting a ceiling here um, at McKinsey. And again, it is totally baffling to me because my clients love me. I do a ton of hours, right? You know, I'm really posting the numbers, right? And so I'm like, this is what this, I should be, you know, I should be able, I I should, I deserve more, right? I know I sound like the other person, but here (laughs) I'm actually posting, but I'm actually posting billable. I'm actually posting hours and projects, right? And my clients love me and they're requesting me back and I'm getting repeat work, right? But yet, you know, I'm struggling because, you know, there is, you know, there, there are parts of, I'm not the best people manager. Nobody's going to give me like development coach of the year award. Okay. So, you know, they're, they're obviously there. And so that's reasons and other reasons. And then I just got to the point where I was fed up, not necessarily with McKinsey Kelly, but the fact that I just said, look, this, when you asked about pivotal point, right. I kind of stumbled into private equity because I just said, I cannot be at a job where my personal interests are not aligned, Right with my client's interest. I'm doing such amazing work for my clients, right? They're having such impact, right? They're doing, they're, they're transforming their businesses, right? And yet that's not being recognized by McKinsey and I'm not feeling that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, later along, I learn after I go to LPs, this is the, you know, this is the heart of our model, the alignment of interest with LPs. It's the carry model, right? And so fortunately I do, thanks to, you know, thanks to David, who at this point has, you know, worked very senior at Hellman and Freeman. I was able to work at Hellman and Freeman and that's how I got into private equity. But it was really not because I grew up dreaming about working at Hellman and Freeman, but it was just along the way saying, look, I just got to be in something where, you know, the impact I have on companies, right, is going to be aligned with my career, right, and, and, and aligned with my aligned with my compensation and my professional fulfillment. Right. So. Well, it's and your story is so interesting and resonates with me. Of course, I took the path of going to law school and because I knew I was going to be a lawyer from the time I was a little girl. But, you know, I never put a lot of thought into what kind of lawyer I was going to be. And so, you know, the way it works in law firms, as you know, is when you come in as a junior associate, whatever group is the top group gets the first choice. And so Mm -hmm. I was at Millbank and the top group at the time was Project Finance. And so they Mm. chose me. I didn't know what Project Finance was. And I mean... (laughs) Like, and I, I and I did not enjoy it, but I learned how to do it. And, it, you know, it was yeah. brutal. I was the only woman yeah. in my group. Um, yeah. And I remember when I finally left and my firm would, I stayed friends with everybody working and, and they would call me every year and say, are you ready to come back? And I was like, <clears throat> absolutely not. I was like, now I'm the client. I do not want to go exactly. to your point about like who's lowest on the food right. chain. Right. Because as you know, you know, the bankers and then consultants spend all day crafting the deal and then the lawyers go back and work all night and draft it. 
and so yeah, there was no way I was going back to this. So you 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 <laughs> understood that point perfectly. Yeah, we we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of similarities. Yeah. Except here's a difference, Kelly. That's the way it works in investment banks as well. The top groups get the first pick of analysts. You were obviously at the top of the pick list. I got into Fig because I was at the bottom. Okay. <laughs> Because nobody wanted to work in Fig. Fig got to pick last, and so I was what was like dodgeball. I basically was pick last. Oh my gosh, that's oh, that's all right. Well, I, I, I well, we can talk about it another time. I, I right, think the fig, right. the fig draw would be pretty interesting, but then again, that's that's what we both do. So why? now, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, now, now I do, but yeah. back then I did not. Right. So you know, lots of people you know, find their way to private equity one way or the other. Yeah. Either they know yeah. they're going or um, like you and I have a circuitous path. That's but right. not everybody makes it to the senior ranks. Um, and so what do you think it is about you or your experience? I mean, obviously you're a founder. I, I have to explain that to people sometimes. Like, I can't really give you advice on how to make it to the senior ranks because I started my firm in private exactly. equity. Exactly. Which makes it a little different, but certainly you worked at Hellman and Friedman, and, and you know mm -hmm. you had success there. So, what do you think it is about you or your experiences along the way that helped you and prepared you to be a senior person in the industry? Right, right. Well, thank you for that, Kelly. And you know, I um, only stayed at Hellman and Friedman a few years because it really was um, the work I was doing at Hellman and Friedman, the asset management industry, particularly for fund of funds, right. That helped birth this idea along with obviously having talked about this with Rebecca and Lori over the years. Um, you know, that, 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 so I, you know, I, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I remember I lived here in 2000, right. In San Francisco, believe me, everybody was an entrepreneur. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's not for me. I'm never going to do a startup. Right. But it really was this idea. It was this point in time, and I know we're in the same industry, so you can think back, right, to 16, 17 years ago, you know, the, just Asia, private equity, institutional investors, just very nascent, right? And so, um, you know, it really was that idea alone. And I said, if it was not that idea, and it was just like the perfect, perfect confluence of events, if it wasn't that idea, and it wasn't Warren backing us, and it wasn't Rebecca and Lori and I coming together, none of this would have happened. And honestly, I don't know if I would have been a senior person at, in, in private equity. Um, a lot of the same challenges that I feel like I faced in my earlier careers in institutional places, I feel like I might have I might have hit here, right? Who knows, right? That's the path not taken, not known. And so um, I'm with you in many ways when people ask me this question, it's tough because Lori, Rebecca, and I started this firm because we love private equity, but we didn't think that we were going to be successful. And I don't mean just like money successful. We probably could have faked our way to that. It was more just professionally successful, like willing to get up in the morning, be excited, go that thousand extra miles, make the sacrifices. Plus we wanted to have families, right? Like we can talk, you know, it's a huge part of this is about work-life balance. And um, honestly, sitting at that point where I was, I didn't feel like that was going to be possible. Not, and I don't, I'm not trying to just Helmut Freeman. I think it's all the firms, the whole industry, right, at that point. Mm -hmm. And so we really were looking for a way to be able to, first of all, pursue this idea that we thought was an you know, this opportunity, which obviously we felt like we were uniquely qualified for because of our experience in Asia. But looking for a different culture and climate, not an easier working environment. Like we work really hard. And I know you work really hard too, right? People think that, you know we somehow move the side of the business, we work less. That's not true, but it's different, right? And it is, and you know, it's different. And so uh, that would be, I guess, when you talk about a turning point of secret success for me in private equity, it is literally saying, okay, you know what you like and you know what you don't like and be very clear about what you can and can't tolerate, right? And you have to have, and this is more of a founder talking, you have to have the guts to go pursue it. And so even if you're not going to be a founder, you have to have the guts to go have that conversation with the senior people or, you know, you know, to get what, you know, to get the environment, the area, you know, the, the environment for you to succeed. And if you're not going to do that, then you have to be bright. You have to have courage to then leave and go look. And sometimes that takes you several tries to do it. Right. Yeah. Or tries to do it. So that's, that's what I think that would just be the only advice that I would have. Right. Right. So I want to pick up on that theme when we come back for our yeah. break. So we're going to take a yeah. quick break to hear a little bit about the sponsors of Moments That Made Her. And when we get back, uh, Melissa and I are going to dig into this a little bit more. We would like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. 
If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Welcome back to Moments That Made Her and my conversation with Melissa Ma. Um, just before the break, we were getting into a really interesting discussion that um, that I think she and I both have uh, perspectives on as female founders. Um, and I completely agree with you, Melissa, whether you're starting a business or honestly, mm-hmm. you know, even just starting a job, you have to look for opportunities to create the culture around you that mm-hmm. that you know, you think you will thrive in and frankly, others will thrive. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you have the really unique experience of being both um, a woman and you're a minority in our culture. And so how did that inform the way you and your partners started the business and particularly created the culture at Asia Alternatives? Yeah, Kelly, I'd like to say that we had some grand plan or we had some noble, um, we had some noble uh, intentions, but honestly, that was not it, right? I mean, we just literally loved and believed in the investing opportunity in Asia, in the private markets, and believed that there was an opportunity to help institutional investors build portfolios. Right. And in many, in many, I think most time we actually forgot we were women and we forgot that we were minorities. We were reminded sometime, we were reminded, and I could talk about that later if you want, very noticeably when we go out fundraising, people remind us about that. Right. But I don't think we were any different. We were just working our butts off. We were getting, you know, rejections. We were trying to have the grit to come back. We were um, celebrating successes. And so I'd like to say that, you know, uh, to get Asia Alternatives up and running. It wasn't so much of a factor. The only thing that I will say is that, um, and it's such a reverse of where we are today, and this is for which I'm so proud of our industry, and I'm so proud, I'm so grateful to PE Win and you and so many other trailblazers that have helped us get here. We purposely did not market ourselves nor apply for any uh, me we be money when we were starting out. Okay, we were very we we, got, we were given advice from some great you know we had we, we started with some we had some great early. Um, um, uh, anchor investors, right? And uh, we were given advice um, from you know some other LPs that we respect a lot that we didn't want to get pigeonholed as a fund that people gave money to only because it was a women-owned fund, right? Which was horrible, right? Think about that. So we purposely turned down opportunities, even though we were desperate to raise our first fund, for people who wanted to fund us, right? Uh, you know, from their women-owned pool or something like that, or from their minority pool, right? So we've really come. So if anything, I think we tried very hard to. I mean, the fact that we were a minority in our culture, like you said, also didn't dawn on us because we're investing in Asia, right? We're Chinese. We're part of like 1.4 billion population, right? Of where we're based. So I guess from that perspective, that never really resonated. Why would we be a specialist if we didn't, you know, if we didn't, if we weren't part of the, um, we weren't local, but the women part of it, if anything, it was, you know, it was actually, we were actually trying to downplay that, right? Uh, because it was a liability in the, and we're trying to raise that first fund. Mm-hmm. And then did it, did it change the way you created your internal culture at the firm? I would say, I wouldn't say it's, I'd say yes, but I don't think it was anything that was explicit. I think that, you know, just like you, right, the, the culture of the firm develops, the culture and the values, um, you know, develop as a result of the founders, right, who they are, how they act, the choices, the everyday choices that you make, right? And so in some ways that I feel like our culture is unique is we work very hard. We are very direct. We move at a very fast pace, right? Um, but we also 100%, right? Uh, we are 100% um, the firm. We ask individuals to be there for each other when there are personal, right? When you when, when you personally need it. And I don't mean that just means you need to go have a date night with your husband, which maybe we're a little less so, but when people have big events in their lives, when they have crises, right? And in many ways, we kind of run our firm a little bit like a family um, as well. And so we call it the Asia Alt family. Um, there have been people that have joked, I don't like this, but they have joked to say that like, you know, I'm like the tiger mom of Asia Alternatives, right? <laughs> And 
that's good or bad because if you're not doing a good job and you're letting me down, you're going to know that. But on the other hand, you know, we're extremely loyal, right? We're extremely loyal and we do take care of employees. Um, we, of course, just being, you know, I didn't, Rebecca had two children, one very young child. Uh, when we started the firm, Lori had just had a baby. She had a second baby uh, at year five. I didn't actually have any children. So both my children were adopted. And I remember uh, getting the call to go pick up my first child right as we were trying to, as right as we were trying to get traction on our fund too. So, you know, so we have always, we love babies. We love children. We love families, right? Um, we love families and have always been incredibly supportive of that. And therefore, you know, this whole concept about flexible work, I don't mean hybrid work like work from home, but flexible work in terms of hours, days, you know, where you can work from. Like, we didn't have a name for it. It was just what we needed to let people do, right, um, to balance what they wanted to do for the interest of the firm, as well as obviously take care of their families, right, right? and their personal needs. Yeah. I, so. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting because in, in my firm, we always had flexible work arrangements. I, yeah. I was always yeah. of the view, look, if, you know, if you made it in our firm, you clearly were doing a good job. I didn't care exactly. where you did your job from. I don't believe in FaceTime. Yep. And believe it or not, more men took advantage of it than women because a lot of my male partners oh, had wives, either had wives with, you know, alpha careers or had or lived in mm -hmm. other cities and so would mm -hmm. come to the city for three days or something. Right. And, you know, my view was whatever makes you a better father, yep. husband, spouse, whatever. Um, makes you a better part business partner, and so yeah, um, so I agree. I think for us, it sort of happened organically. It sounds like it did for you as well. It just like you yeah. trust your partners. You know they're doing their job. What do they have to do yep. to make it work? Um, actually, in yours to the benefit of the firm. Yep, exactly. Yes, yeah, very organic. It's a good yeah. word. And so um, obviously, you've you know, as you said, you had a very nonlinear path. Is there something you point to now that you think is a high point of the of your career? Yes, um, the you know it's almost one of these questions I kind of get. What is the high point, or what is something that I'm most proud of in my career? And so I will tell you the thing that I it's actually two points, but they're the same. Uh, the thing that I am most proud of in my career is when we made what I call our first homegrown partner. Okay. So my partner, Praneet Garg, we had worked together at McKinsey. We're quite a bit of difference in age. He um, took a leap of faith, um, moved from India <laughs> to Hong Kong uh, to join this little startup for major alternatives. And he was our first associate. And the day, and he's been obviously with us for a long time. And the day that he made partner was extremely proud for me. And again, you know, I just felt like a proud... <laughs> Going back to this mom, right? I'm not trying to mother everybody in Asia all to death, but it was like I was such a proud mom, right? Because I'd known him when he was this young, out of college, right? You know, just starting McKinsey person to now being, you know, now being not only a partner at Asia Alternatives, but like one of the most well-respected private equity professionals in India. You know, what one of the GPs used to tell me is, yeah, when Praneet's in town, everybody's everybody takes note, <laughs> right? And that just made me so yeah. proud because he did that for himself. Maybe we gave him the platform and we gave him the training and we helped him get through good times and bad, but he created that for himself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So. yeah. For me, one of the things I love in particular is when people who started with their careers with me, when they were, you know, very young, you know, call me or email me or text me mm -hmm. to share their successes, you know? And so That's similar, right. like That's whether right. they're getting married or they have yeah. a child or they got yeah. a promotion. I love, even though they don't work for me anymore, you know, they've gone on to other firms. Yeah. I love that they know yeah. that I'm going to celebrate them. And, you know, I've always been one of these managers. I mean, obviously there are people you let go because, you know, it, it, it yeah. was not a good fit in a, in a bad way, but there, mm -hmm. I, I never necessarily felt it was a bad thing when people move on um, because I think it reflects well on you and that prepared mm -hmm. them and that you prepared them so well that other people want them, not that you want that to happen. But I love the fact that people stay in touch with me and they let me know because they, they know that I'm going to be happy or proud. That's so, great. Um, That's great. So is there, other than like obviously starting the business, is there something you point to that's been a particularly fun or creative moment? 
Um, as it relates to age alternatives, there is kind of where I would say more non-traditional private equity. There was one thing that we got to do that uh, it was really fun for me. And I thought, uh, Ellie, you know, we are still in private equity, right? We're not artists. So the definition of creativity has its limits. Okay. Um, and that's Kelly, how we celebrated our 10th anniversary. Okay. So, um, you know, philanthropy has always been very important to me and my family. When you talk about culture, right, we brought that to age alternatives, right? So philanthropy has been very important to us and there, and particularly as it relates to our professional philanthropy is being involved with organizations that help develop education and children, right. And the early, brain trust, right, of these countries that we invest in, because most of them are kind of emerging markets, right? So we had two organizations. Um, so, you know, obviously we have a big China practice, and so we were working with this organization at the time called Half the Sky, now One Sky, which incidentally is where I adopted my mm-hmm. children. Rebecca and I are now board members. And then for the non-China part, we were working with uh, Room to Read, which many people know. It started as a girl's education. It was also started by a fellow analyst that uh, was with me at Goldman Sachs. And when we thought about how we wanted to celebrate our 10th anniversary, right, we thought about, okay, we want to celebrate, uh, how did we get here? Like, celebrate the people that helped us get here, right? But also, you know, what would be a very meaningful way that we could also um, contribute, right, and help think about the next 10 years, the 20 years, right, and give back to those, you know, amazing opportunities that we were given these countries. And so we came up with this concept called POP, the power of the partnership, okay? And so our whole 10th anniversary was about POP. And we talked about that that is why we are, as a fund of funds, everything about what we do is partnership, right? It's partnership with our LPs. It's partnership with our GPs. And for us, it's partnership with the people in our family, you know, people in our Asian family, right? So that is how we got here. And then as, and collect the same way that we were all individually successful, but collectively successful because of the pop, the power of the partnership, how could we take that pop and the power of the partnership to do good? And so we launched this whole year long celebration series of events and things like that, right? To celebrate our partnerships with the various constituencies we had, but also to bring them along in, you know, in, in, in order to help advance, right, the causes of what these two great organizations were doing. Because these nonprofits were also partnerships mm-hmm. of ours, right? They've been part of our so they've been part of our fabric at Asia Alt since inception. And, you know, that, you know, it was really fun and creative, but it was at the end of the day at the heart, I think, of what, you know, you know I feel this way and I'd love to get your perspective because you own similar business. That, you know, as a fund of funds, that's basically, that's basically what you have to be good at. You have to be good at partnerships, right? Not just long-term relationships, but partnerships, right? And so I thought that really brought the best kind of, of what we were and what we wanted to continue to become. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's, as you know, um, throughout our business, we often, you, yeah. you, your firm and my firm shared clients. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and I think it, I think in many in many ways, it was because we share that philosophy. You know, mm-hmm. I never viewed yep. what we did as um, transactional. It's very much about mm-hmm. you know partnering with people for the long term, solving their problems, yep. recognizing, particularly when you're working with um, public pension plans, where there's yes. a whole other yes. layer of stuff that yep. they deal with has nothing yes. to do with investing. Exactly. And um, right. there's so many people who just you know they come in and it's very transactional, and and so I. I applaud you for taking that opportunity not to just like throw a bash and, you know, have a, you know, have a band come play, but instead actually celebrate all of your partnerships and then have it inure to the benefit of these charities, which are obviously very near and dear to your heart. I think that's a great model that other firms can follow. Yeah, thank you. And right back at you, as I said, I'm with Lompin and Amira. I think there's a reason why not just we share LPs in common, but, you know, your partners, my partners, particularly once Asia is always very close. We've invested together. We've always been symbiotic when it comes to LPACs. And there's a reason for that, right, which is there are certain cultural values. You talk about culture, right, that I, you know, that I know you hold dear and are part of what you and your partners hold dear as well as we do. Good. Well, that makes me happy. Um, Well, so one of the things I always try to do in these talks, lest people think that, you know, folks like us are perfect, is, you know, acknowledge (laughs) that while we've had many successes, we've also had some, you know, failures, teachable moments, whatever euphemism you want to use. Um, Is there anything that you would share? um, You don't even have to share a specific thing unless you want to, but kind of like what you learned or what got you through that, that episode? 
Yeah, sure. There's one that's external and one that's internal, if you don't mind if I share. Um, so the external one, and, and they, they're different life lessons, right, things that kind of shaped me. <laughs> one was um, we were desperately trying to raise that first fund, and it was very hard, right, because we were a fund of funds. We were three women. We had not worked together. We didn't have a track record. We were trying to focus on Asia, right? Nobody was investing in Asia. And we'd worked really, really hard on getting um, one or two anchor investors, right? And one of the anchor investors we were looking for, um, a lead investor, was a former client of mine, right? I actually set up their private equity program. It's actually a pension fund, right? And I'd worked there, been a client at McKinsey. And so, you know, we were, it was just so far along and I was just so far, I was just sure it was going to happen. And then they turned us down. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe it. And I remember that was the first time in my career as an entrepreneur of Asia Alternatives, I literally broke down and cried, right? You know, I'm a pretty strong person, okay? <laughs> I literally broke down and cried. And I was like, if these people who love me and for whom I set up their program right, can't back this, what have I just done? Like, I've just given, I've just quit my phenomenally lucrative job at Hellman and Friedman to go do this, right? When I left Hellman and Friedman, one of the partners said to me, why are you leaving Hellman and Friedman? It's like leaving the mint. Would you leave the U.S. mint? And I was like, what am I doing? Right? Kelly is like, oh my God, what am I doing? Right? I take it a second mortgage out of my house to start the firm, right? I was like, what am I doing? Anyway, so I, you know, I, I just really had a tremendous amount of self-doubt, right? And that is where when I go back to when I, you know, I, you know, it's a marketing phrase, POP, the power of the partnership, but that's really where it came in because then it broke my heart. I had to go talk to my partners about it and I had to tell them about it. And I thought that this was going to be the end. And it was where they said, you know what? It's okay. We'll move on. We'll raise a smaller fund. There's other ways to do this. We're going to find this, right? And so I will never work, you know, I will never work when I, this is my last job anyway. But if I was going to, you know, I will never work in another organization that's not a partnership. Because, again, that alignment of interest with our LPs also happens when you're in mm -hmm. a partnership. Right. So that was one that's important to the partnership. And then the second was just the grit. Right. And so we didn't even call it then. I know we're all trying to teach our, our teach our kids grit, but that's really what you need. Right. You just got to be able to pick it up and go forward. So that's that's kind of one story. The other one that I want to share is, you know, we're trudging along here for a couple of years in that I'm not going to name names. Um, one of my most treasured employees who I just feel like we never would be here. It's not a founding partner, but I just feel like we'd never be here uh, without it. You know, basically almost had a nervous breakdown and they had a nervous breakdown because I was pushing them so hard. And that was just a, you know, I, I, I push myself hard. I expect a lot of people, right. You know, we are a very hard charging culture and that was just such a wake up call for me, right. Is that for the first time in my life, I really had to stop and think about the impact, right, that, you know, in this drive to make sure Asia all succeeded, right, that there are, you know, that there can't be casualties and that, that uh, you know, that I have to be, I have to be, I have to be realistic, right, and I have to also be sensitive, right, to the impact that I have around others, right, as, as as, and so I'm still not saying I'm a gentle, fuzzy person to work with, but from then on out, you know, it's hard, especially as you get to a certain age, right, to change fundamentally who you are in your DNA. But then that was a pivotal moment for me to say whether this is in my nature or this, you know, or this is in my nature, not in my nature, right? Um, it is not acceptable because I just didn't, I didn't realize the impact I was having on yeah. people. It's, uh, that's a very interesting um, example. I think that you and I are probably wired in a similar way in that, yeah. you know, I'm the kind of person I don't. I don't need to hear when I'm doing a good job. Tell me yes. if I'm doing a bad job. Fix it. Exactly. And I don't need like a pat exactly. on the head. I don't need an atta girl. I don't need yeah. any of that stuff. And yeah. um, and I think the hardest one of the hardest things I had to learn as an as a leader as a manager is to stop and take the time to go tell someone or talk to them or give them, you know, feedback. I mean, I became notorious, yep. I guess, because I'm a lawyer for my red pen. And I would take it <laughs> like, no, with exclamation points or you know, whatever. And, and, and people Love would it. lose their minds and like really be devastated. And I would think, wait a second, the CEO yeah. of the business took the time to mark your document up and how to do it exactly. right. Isn't that a good thing? No, 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 no. Not everyone thinks that way. Exactly. So I totally understand what you're talking about. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still I'm still a work in yeah. progress. As we all Let are. Let me just be clear. Yes. We all are. <laughs>
Um, yes, I totally get it. Um, well, now we're going to move to uh, one of my favorite parts, which is our lightning round. So I'm just going to throw okay. a couple questions at you. Tell me what comes sure. to mind. Um, and my first question is, what is a great book you've either read or listened to recently? So this was actually a recommendation from another investor, and I and I highly recommend it. It's um, uh, it's called Factfulness, uh, and I had to literally write it down. Right, ten reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think, and it's by um, a Swedish psychologist, Hans Rosling. Right, and it's particularly apropos right now because I spend my life trying to explain China and the divisiveness around China, and so it's really helpful as a reminder that actually facts matter and trying to do the work to get a balanced picture on the facts is really important as an investor. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Who, who who would have thought that we'd be at a point in our history where you have to you have to champion facts. <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. Oh my word. So I recommend all investors yeah. read this or just listen I love to it that. at least. It's a quick read. Um, so <laughs> do you have a guilty pleasure TV show, movie, podcast? Oh so, you know, I, I am showing my age. I am clearly a child of the 80s. I love the 20-minute sitcom, okay, the comedy sitcom. And so um, I can binge – I have, and I will do it again. I will binge watch all the classics. I love binge watching uh, – right, what do I have right now? Like, uh, you know, Young Sheldon or, you know, uh, or Big Bang Theory, right, Um uh, more recent, you know, Ted Lasso, mm -hmm. right? And so, I uh, and 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 when they're not any other good ones that come on, like I go back and I just I watch them the again. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I watch The Office and I watch Parks and Rec on repeat. Oh, those are so, great! They're just so mindless, yeah, right? So they're so ridiculous they're so, and like, mindless, but they're great. Couldn't exactly. agree more. Um, so, what's exactly. your cell phone wallpaper? It's my kids. It's my kids and myself, but a younger picture because I want to remember that they're, I want to try to forget that they're growing up as quickly as right. they are. Um, are you a dog or a cat person? So I'm very embarrassed to say this, that my kids wore me down during the pandemic and we now have four oh. kittens. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so we have a lot of cats. Wow. Wow. Yes. I like cats. We used to have, we had two cats when we lived in New York. Now we have a little dog. So we like, we like both, you know, we're, we're open-minded. Yeah. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? This was actually given to me by, um, the most senior woman partner I ever worked with at McKinsey. And she said to me at one point, and this was when I was kind of just really questioning, right. My career there was, you can have it, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. Hmm. Right. And it's really reminded me because at times when I'm like, Ugh, like, you know, I'm doing this, but I'm giving up this, right. Don't have this. Right. You know, it just maybe gives you a little bit of perspective on you have to just be patient and life yeah, is long. That's good. I always say my, my variation on the theme is you can have it all. It just depends on how you define all. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I think too many that's people right. define all based on what they see other people have and not based on what they mm -hmm. really need. Yep. And uh, particularly right. my friends, you know, like you and other, other powerful women, I, I, I still remember, I think it's gosh, 15 years ago that, um, I guess it was Time Magazine, maybe that did the the trophy husband. At oh yes, that's right. And so yes. any of us yes. partners who don't have the alpha career, you know, one of the I always say one of the least talked about things in private equity is that the women who are partners often are the primary breadwinners in their household, and yep. whereas so often men just think this is like a nice to do for us, and you know we're kind of moonlighting and we don't really yeah. have a job, and yes. it's like no. Our families rely on us. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, so I think that's like, you know, a really important thing. And so all really depends on how you define all. And I, I often, I find that when I'm asked to speak to groups of younger women who are earlier in their career, the first mm -hmm. few questions will be mm -hmm. about the business. And then invariably question three or four is how do you find a mate? Yeah. And I always yeah. say, look, you have to be open-minded. You have to be um, you have to accept the fact that you're probably not going to change the way you're wired. If you're a hard driving person, you're going to continue to be, you're probably going to want to continue to work. And so it's okay not to marry a mogul. It's okay to marry or partner with somebody who 
is willing to take, you know, take a backseat to your career for some period of time. And so that's why I would say you can have a, you can have great, fabulous, successful, happy partnership with someone. Um, it just doesn't have to look like, you know, something you see on television. Well, Kelly, I need to take you out to dinner and have that conversation because I'm the other variant of other women and senior women of our I've uh, never been married. Yeah. And that's okay right. too. <laughs> that That's actually... <laughs> No, no, no. I need the advice, Kelly, because I haven't been successful. All right. Honestly. That's my next project. We're gonna work on there you go. Okay. All right. So the last question is, is there one thing you would share with us that we don't know about you yet? Oh, so I was going to say the Southern accent earlier, but you had already, you, you were very good. You kind of rooted that out very, very quickly. Um, uh, you know, I would say that people see me as a very outgoing uh, person right? And a very social person. Um, but I am actually at heart a social introvert. Okay. And the people that know me very well will see that. And, um, you know, I, 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 my personality, I probably was leaning towards the extrovert, but I think as women and, uh, as women, especially in some of the background industries that I do, you learn to be an extrovert because you have to survive. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to survive. So when I do Myers-Briggs, I'm clearly an mm -hmm. extrovert. Right. But there is definitely parts of me for whom this is extremely exhausting. And at the end of the day, maybe one of the reasons I'm not married, Kelly, is I can't go home and like suddenly have a large conversation. Right. I go home and I have like no more energy left. Right. I have no more energy left. Um, so I think some people would find that surprising about me. Right. Just given how I appear and how I yeah. act. Right. In real in, in the in the normal course of day. I think that's another thing we share. I think people would also assume I'm an extrovert. Because I'm out yeah. and about all the time, but nothing makes me happier than to be at home. And my husband knows. I always yes. tell people, I'm yes. I'm basically the husband from the 1950s sitcom. Like I come home, don't <laughs> talk to me for the first 45 minutes. Ideally, have a cocktail waiting for me. Like, I was gonna say, does he have a cocktail waiting? Yeah, it's like <laughs> I just need to, you know. I I and he's dying to chit chat yeah. and tell me about, and I can't yeah. talk. No. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. Honey, I had yeah. a hard day, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Honey, I'm home and I had a hard day. Exactly. Um, exactly. Well, this has been a blast, as I knew it would. Melissa Ma, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Moments That Made Her. I know our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I have. So thank you again. Thank you, Kelly. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE Win expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.